Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're blessed to have returning to Dr. Doctor's microphone, Dr. John Grabenstein, a world-class vaccine expert. Before we get to the interview, we have a bonus guest from our friends at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, or the NCBC, Dr. Joe Zalot, a bioethicist there, is going to help us understand the moral categories of three different groups of COVID vaccines in production. Joe hosts the NCBC podcast called Bioethics on Air, and we at Dr. Doctor recommend that you give it a listen, especially as there has been several episodes covering the ethics of various aspects of the pandemic. Joe joined us for a podcast-only episode early in the pandemic, and we're pleased to have him appear on this episode that will be broadcast on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We're, we're welcoming Joe back to Dr. Doctor. So first, we wanted to lay a groundwork for some focused and practical questions that many people I know have been asking. They want to know what should a Catholic receive or not receive, and under what circumstances, to respect human dignity and to respect life. So for thinking ethically about the vaccines, and I've talked with Joe about this off air, so it, it seems that there are three categories right now in terms of use of cells derived from two aborted babies over 40 years ago. And we'll refer to eight vaccines on the Project Warp Speed list. Right. And, you know, first, there are vaccines that are clearly problematic. They have been tested, developed, and produced in cells from aborted babies. These are two adenovirus vector vaccines in phase three trials being produced by the Oxford, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson uh, groups. Right. And those are two different groups. Oxford, AstraZeneca is one. Johnson & Johnson has a subsidiary called Janssen, just to confuse things. Second, there are vaccines in the groups with ha which have no evidence that aborted fetal cells, often referred to as HEC-293, H-E-K-293, or PER-C6, P-E-R-C.6. They've been used in testing, development, or production. So these are the Sanofi GSK protein vaccine, now in phase two studies, and the Merck viral vaccine in phase one studies. On EWTN News Nightly last week, and on EWTN Church Live, I want to correct myself. I erroneously referred to this as the Sanofi Pasteur vaccine. I was wrong. Sanofi is working with GSK and with Pasteur. And the Pasteur vaccine is going to be in the third category with uh, some others. And Andrew's going to discuss those. Yes. In the third category, there are four warps, warp speed vaccines in an intermediate category. They do not use aborted fetal cells to design, develop, or produce vaccines, but some of their confirmatory lab tests do utilize the HEC-293 cells. These four vaccines include two that may be approved by the FDA in December here very soon. Uh, the first one's the Pfizer BioNTech group, and the second one is the Moderna one, and they're probably going to be available here pretty soon. There is a third MNRA vaccine produced by Novavax in phase three studies and an in vivo DNA vaccine in phase three studies that fall into this ethical category. So Joe, that should set us up for some practical questions. By the way, welcome to, again to Dr. Doctor. Well, Tom and Andrew, thank you for having me be on it. And thank you for the shout out for the Bioethics on Air podcast. Happy to do so. You deserve it. W would you say that from your understandings of the science, that summarized accurately the way that you at the NCBC are looking at categories of vaccines? Actually, that's exactly the way we're looking at, at the categories. Yes. Perfect. Okay. We're on, now on the same page. <laughs> and when we talk about cooperation with evil, which is what we have to consider, we talk about formal and material cooperation. What do they mean? How important are they? Well, they're very important. And, you know, we could talk about them for hours, but we won't. Um, <laughs> I mean, we really could because there's so many different categories within each one. But essentially, formal cooperation occurs when one wills, intends, or, in, or assents to another person's immoral act. Material cooperation uh, exists when one does not will, intend, or assent to the immoral act of another. Uh, one may even be morally opposed to the action. However, one participates in the performance of that act in some way. And that's where we get into the various categories of immediate, mediate, or, uh, approximate, mediate, remote, mediate, and all of that. So, so we're talking here about material cooperation, not formal cooperation for someone who might receive one of these vaccines produced or tested unethically. Yeah, generally speaking, people who receive vaccines, we're talking about material cooperation. We could be talking about formal cooperation. We're talking about the the producers um, of Correct. The vaccines, possibly. Not but for our listeners now, 
we're sticking to those who might receive it. So we're just concerned material. You mentioned that there is either proximate or remote. Right. What does that mean? Well, when you get into particularly under material cooperation, um, the question is if, if you're like, say for these vaccines, if you're accepting a vaccine, are you participating in the abortion that took place 30, 40 years ago to produce the cell lines from which the vaccine came? And in some ways, the answer is yes. However, your your participation is incredibly far away. It's very remote. Proximate would mean close, remote, far away. The, the recipients of the vaccines, the participation is very, very remote. And is that just a mitigating qualification there or insofar as, you know, someone would be more or less culpable or is it an essential difference there in deciding different courses of action? It can be both. I mean, it, it, it can be a, mit- a mitigating factor in terms of the decisions to receive a vaccine, but it, it is essential as well, too, in terms of understanding the nature of a moral act. Okay, now let's look at the two most morally problematic ones on the warp speed list. One in the news now, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, which, by the way, just this week, the bishops of England told their flock is morally acceptable to receive, as well as the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. These are both made in uh, aborted fetal cells. These adenovirus vaccines are, are made that way. So what level of cooperation with evil would somebody be if they're receiving one of these? And what should they know? If they're receiving the vaccines, I would say they're, they're probably um, remote material cooperation. Um, so again, it, it, they are very far removed. But I think what people should know if they are receiving these vaccines is that the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, not only in the development, but also in the ongoing production stage, they are using these abortion-derived uh, cell lines. And so people need to be aware of that as they're making these decisions. Now, in the second category, or in another category, we have the mRNA vaccines, completely made without cells. But some of the confirmatory tests were done in HEC-293 cells, Pfizer, Moderna, Sanofi, Pasteur. So what do you want people to know? Is Are these as morally problematic as the AstraZeneca and Janssen vaccines? They're not as morally problematic as the AstraZeneca and the Janssen vaccines, but there still are, how shall we say, there, there's still an ethical taint to them. I mean, there is that connection with the aborted fetal cell line. And in fact, if, you know, if and when a vaccine, we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but if and when a vaccine comes to market that has no connection to these um, abortion-derived cell lines at all, that would be the best place for people to go. Um, that would be the vaccine to receive. Um, short of that, um, the, you know, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are, ethic- are less ethically problematic, but there still are ethical concerns with them. Gotcha. And and just as a point of analogy, in the traditional pediatric vaccine series, we have some that would parallel all three of these categories. And just to kind of reiterate what we've heard on other shows is that, you know, given the lack of options, there is morally reasonable to do these things. Is that right? That is correct. And actually, that's a point that I should have made before when we were talking about formal and material cooperation. This principle comes into play when you don't have options. And Dr. Mullally, as you said, there's for many of the pediatric, well, some of the pediatric vaccines, there are no options other than accepting vaccines that were developed and are still manufactured using these cell lines. So the same principles with those pediatric vaccines essentially uh, are at play with the COVID-19 vaccines. It's kind of exciting that we may have more options with the COVID ones. We hope. We hope. Uh, We're seeing different um, pronouncements by different Catholic groups on this. The USCCB chairman of the committees on doctrine and pro-life activities say there's nothing morally problematic about receiving the Pfizer Moderna vaccines. Likewise, the Catholic Health Association, the Charlotte Lozier Institute have made similar comments, but individual bishops like Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, Bishop Brennan of Fresno, California have stated that these are immorally produced vaccines that the faithful should not receive. And these are going to be available within days or weeks to those of us who are our physicians and nurses. How should we understand this different advice? Yeah, uh, just a, a quick point before that. This is, I think, one of the problems with these disagreements you see is that our, you know, those who in the in the secular media are starting to use these disagreements kind of against us. They're saying, "Look, even Catholics right. can't figure out what the heck is going on." Well, as far as these kind of two categories of statements, I think 
none of them are quite correct in themselves. And I think we need to, to clarify that. So on one hand- That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I hope. Um, so on one hand, you have, you have Bishop Strickland and Bishop Brennan, that you have their statements, and they focus on conscientious objection, which is a good thing to do. But they, they don't nuance the differences in how the abortion-derived cell lines were used, as we talked about earlier. You know, there's a big difference between the, the Sanofi, uh, the, the, not the Sanofi, the um, Moderna and the Pfizer versus the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson. And those yes. nuances aren't there in, those, in the bishop's statements. Also, those statements don't actually accurately reflect Catholic teaching on the use of vaccines. And that's what, you know, Dr. Malali, we were just, we were just talking about that. So that, those statements weren't quite correct on that end. But then on the other hand, the USCCB, the internal memo that became external, and the Catholic Health Association, well, then the, the Catholic Health Association statements, I think, and I, I'm speaking, this is me speaking, I'm not speaking for the NCBC here, I'm speaking for me personally, but I don't think those two statements adequately take into account the fact that people have conscientious objections to, to the way the COVID-19 vaccines have been developed or produced. It, it almost seems when you read those statements that that people are, that Catholics are being given a pass or almost kind of like a get out right. of jail free card. It's like, you know, don't worry about it. There's no problem. Go ahead and accept the vaccines when in fact there are issues. I, I guess that's one of the questions is, is it ever remote enough that it becomes not important? You know, uh, even, even with them being used in production, is it a remote enough issue that is that what they're trying to get at? Or in reality, if we have a choice, one's clearly morally better than the other, we're, we're kind of obliged to go in that direction. I would say if, if there's one that's clearly morally better than the other, you are obliged to go that direction. And, you know, when you're talking about, you know, abortion derived cell lines, I don't think there's, I don't think you can get remote enough, to be honest. And again, that, that's me speaking. Um, but so there you know, is a circumstance under which we Catholics can receive such vaccines. What is required of a Catholic who decides to receive a vaccine that does have that moral taint? All right, there's two things. So one, there has to be a proportionately serious reason to receive it. There has to be, a, in other words, like a serious threat to public health. And I think the, the three of us would agree that the COVID-19 um, virus presents a proportionately serious reason. Yes. So, so that's one. The second is if there's no other alternative. Right. And so right now, as we're sitting here to, uh, recording this today, it's, you know, the Pfizer, the Moderna and the AstraZeneca are the ones that are essentially available. There's no other option. So there's no but the AstraZeneca is not available in the U.S. But it may be it may be soon. So or for, for people Correct. in the U.K. Um, right. But there are no alternatives that have no ethical taint at all. And until that happens, um, you know, Catholics and others um, certainly can receive these vaccines in good conscience. Now, isn't there something about uh, doing it under protest and making some action to try to convince companies to do it without? Yeah, the, the church has asked us and back, uh, I mean, the Pontifical Academy for Life back in 2005, when they first addressed this issue with the, with the pediatric vaccines, um, they said, yes, you can, for the reasons that we just spoke about, you can accept these vaccines, but you do have a duty to uh, register your complaint or register your objections to this. And actually, and, and Tom and Andrew, you've had uh, Debbie Van Edge from Children yes. of God for Life. Her website actually has um, addresses of you know the pharmaceuticals that you can write to. I just checked the other day. I don't think she has um, the addresses for the COVID-19 vaccines. I know she's got them for the, for the, um, for the pediatric vaccines. But she has information there that you can um, that you can go to, and she has contact information. I think she even names names, so you you can you have a name of someone that you can write to as well. Hey Joe, what at what point you know on other shows we've talked about a duty to vaccinate in solidarity? At what point does a Catholic have a duty to receive a COVID vaccine? You know, I've been thinking about this question ever since Tom sent me these. Sent me there. Sent me there. <laughs> it can't be too easy on you, Joe. No, I know. You know, I, I would say right now because I mean, the the COVID nineteen vaccines still, in a lot of ways, are experimental in the sense mm -hmm. that we don't, you know, we don't have all. They appear to be safe. They appear to be effective, but we don't know yet. We don't know what the long if there could be some long term consequences and anything else. So I'm not sure. I would say there's a moral duty. I would say it would be highly prudential 
for someone who, say, due to the nature of their work or their life circumstances, they're in close contact with people, uh, particularly people who are susceptible to to COVID-19, I think it would be highly providential for them to be vaccinated. Now, Tom, you and I had an email conversation about a a week or two ago, and your situation is very different from mine. You are literally and figuratively um, very close to your patients. You're you're operating on them. Me, I'm sitting generally, well, I'm sitting at home right now, but I'm sitting (laughs) in my office at work. Most of most of our people are, are working from home. Um, I'm not in close contact with people. So if there was a, if it was highly prudential for one person, I'd say it would be much more highly prudential for you, Tom, and, and for you, actually, Andrew, as well, than it would be for me. I think okay. the duty comes in, really, if, if you want to talk duty, I think the duty comes in for the people who choose not to be vaccinated. I mean, they have a duty to do whatever they can to assure that they don't pass on COVID-19 to other people. So that would, you know, include masking, physical distancing, um, you know, no travel, um, could even mean like not enrolling your children in, in school or, or whatever the case may be. So I think the duty may be fall more heavily in terms of the people who choose not to be vaccinated. And Joe, you just came out with an excellent resource for the average layperson about receiving COVID vaccines. Tell our listeners about that. Yeah, so we find we we've been working on it for a little while, and we've uh, put out a statement uh, just the other day. It's called "Points to Consider on the Use of COVID nineteen Vaccines." It's available on our website, and it addresses a lot of the things that we've been talking about briefly here tonight, plus more. Uh, yes. And what we've tried to do is is try to get that middle ground. We we want to recognize that you know the, the COVID nineteen obviously is very serious. And it, Catholics can, under certain, certain circumstances, they can receive the vaccine. But at the same time, we want to also hold on to and hold up people who have conscientious objections and conscientious, conscientious concerns. And we've heard from those people. People have called us and, and expressed this concern, and, and we want to make sure that those people are heard. And so that's what we try to do in our state. So what's that website, Joe? It's ncbcenter.org. And what is the link for the resource? What's it would it called? be... Uh, again, the the document is called. I got to scroll back. the The document is titled "Points to Consider on the Use of COVID nineteen Vaccines." It should be available right on the main page. And before we get to the end of this segment, we have our patented medical trivia question of the day, and the category is warp speed. Yeah, I couldn't resist. You know, it's very loosely medical. Okay, it's not medical at all, but it, but it is. Okay, since the government chose to call the project to rapidly develop COVID vaccines, Project Warp Speed, I'm going to do it. The term warp speed comes from the Star Trek series of television shows and movies. A warp speed of warp factor one has always meant what speed? That's the first of a two-part question. What speed? <laughs> Joe's waving his hand. We'll answer it off air. This isn't time to answer it. The bonus question, <laughs> according to the creator of Star Trek, and also in many of the episodes and movies, what warp factor is equivalent to infinite speed that is being in all places at the same time? And as Catholics, only God can do that. But on the imaginary world of Star Trek, you can do it at this warp factor. To get the answers, you're going to have to stay tuned until the end of the show. We'll be right back with more on this episode of Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to our guest interview today with Dr. John Grabenstein. He's a global vaccinologist. I wonder if he played in a sandbox dreaming of being a vaccinologist. <laughs> Did we even know that word at that time? He's a pharmacist, got a PhD in epidemiology. He is a true scientist. He operates Vaccine Dynamics, a multifaceted consulting service, but used to be the vaccine director for the Department of Defense, that's Army, Navy, Air Force, etc., and then later, Merck Pharmaceuticals. John and his lovely wife, Lori, have four wonderful children and a rescue dog who are all surprisingly fully vaccinated. John, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks very much. Glad to be back. So, John, we've got two vaccines on the cusp of approval. We're recording this on Wednesday evening, December 9th. On December 10th, the FDA is going to consider Pfizer's vaccine. On December 17th, they're going to consider the Moderna vaccine, respectively. How effective are these vaccines compared to vaccines that most listeners have received? These two are really, really good. Uh, 95% efficacy for one, 94% efficacy for the other. That's statistically the same number. That's as good as measles vaccine. That's better than flu vaccine. Uh, so uh, these are products that, uh, that are going to have great value. And my hunch in reading it is that uh, we have, we, science, have found the Achilles heel of the virus, 
and uh, the mechanism that this product, these vaccines exploit are probably going to work for a bunch of the other vaccines too. You know, when they're meeting tomorrow, they're going to look at a lot of data. What type of data is the FDA going to use to decide whether they should grant authorization of these vaccines? So when a sponsor, a developer, manufacturer sends their application to the FDA, they send all the clinical trial data, they send the chemistry of the product, they send all the data that supports that they can manufacture various batches consistently. And um, uh, according to one of the senior people there, Peter Marks, that file can be 100,000 pages long. Essentially, <laughs> there's a page for every volunteer in every study. You know, so it's That's a longer than the Affordable data. Care Act. <laughs> that's longer than the Affordable Care Act. Probably so. Um, <laughs> but, it, but that's the kind of detail the FDA goes in. It's not just, you know, there was somebody bad mouth in the FDA the other day <clears throat> for you know, taking, you know, taking their own sweet time. And he, that fellow has no idea what, you know, the, the, the depth of, that the FDA goes into. So you mentioned earlier the Achilles heel. Is that Achilles heel, the spike protein? Indeed. So um, this, uh, you've probably seen the pictures of the virus. It looks like a yes. Christmas orange with clove. <laughs> yes. Out of it. Yes. And those cloves are the spikes. And so the, the, these various vaccines are, are making that spike protein in a variety of ways. And the body reacts to it, makes antibodies against it. So when it's an isolated spike, the body makes antibodies for it. And if the whole, the whole virus comes into the body, you're infected. Uh, then those uh, antibodies zoom in like Pac-Man and uh, gobble up the virus. That's wonderful. So what the FDA is meeting about on the 10th and 17th is whether or not to give an EUA, emergency youth authorization. Easy for me to say, right. So what does that mean, John? An EUA. So, so after 9-11, uh, Congress and the executive branch realized that they needed a way to give access to, to, to products uh, uh, before the FDA had completed a full review. When, if you think of a tipping point, when the FDA has just enough information to say it's, it's probably good, um, but before they've you know, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and sure. gotten to page 100,000, uh, in the in the big uh, in the big packet, and so and so EUAs were born, emergency use authorization, and that's what that we've FDA has been issuing bundles of them since the beginning of the year. A yes. bunch of the N95 respirators were authorized, new, you know, essentially new manufacturers authorized under EUAs. A bunch of the lab tests have been under EUAs. Convalescent plasma, remdesivir, the antiviral, the the monoclonal antibody we talked about. Um, Yep. Uh, Regeneron uh, and BAM, BAM, Lenivimab. Yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they all came out through EUA. So, so this is now extending that process, which is now more familiar to people, to vaccines. What what are they uh, not doing compared to their normal thing? Because uh, some yeah. people hear EUA, they think, oh, you're you're just doing the shortcut. Uh, you're skipping stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great question because I, I described that tipping point thing. Um, so how could it be that it's good enough to send out with an EUA, but not good enough to yet to give a traditional full license? And it could be that um, you know the 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 Cliff Notes version looks good, uh, but they haven't completed all of the statistical tests that they would normally done, subgroup upon subgroup upon subgroup. Or the manufacturer has uh, not completed all of its, um, they have to make three consistency lots to, to show that they can be uniformly produced ah, of high yes. quality. They haven't finished that part. Some part of this process is undone. And so there's an I not dotted, there's a T not crossed, but the sentence is readable. And, <laughs> uh, and, with you know two thousand people dying a day uh, in balance, it's better to you know give it. So what what the what they would do is probably bring forward, let's say, the product access ninety days. Well, at a thousand people dying a day, two thousand people dying a day now, that's two hundred thousand people dying waiting three months. So that's why there's an EUA. You that had, makes good sense. You had brought up a really interesting statistic off air right before we start. I wonder yeah. if you could share that yeah. with us. It was a, an email that came in this afternoon, and it just made me stop. It was the top ten, top eight deadliest day in American history. 
And number one was the Galveston hurricane, you know, 1900 or something like that. Uh, number two was the Battle of Antietam. Number eight was the attack on Pearl Harbor. And number three, four, five, six, and seven, five of them were five days last week. Each of them by themselves, the third or fourth deadliest day in American history. And they were five days in a row. And today, there's even more deaths. So that, you know, today becomes, actually, it'll, it may exceed the Battle of Antietam. I'm not sure. Wow. Uh, but, you know, this pandemic is killing people. You know, I, I think it's really good to, to review that because for so long during this pandemic, there were places in the country that got hit hard and obviously it was very real to them uh, living there. But there are so many people who never knew someone with COVID or they did know somebody and they did okay. I think we are quickly, I know clinically in my practice, um, we're getting to the point where you're seeing plenty of people having severe outcomes. Um, And so hearing something like that, I think drives home the point that, you know, maybe even if it's, if it's not hit your family yet, per se, it is growing rapidly. Right. Yeah. And and, um, just check your hospital for, you know, who it's turning away because, because the hospital's the state of Indiana, where we are today, the governor uh, suspended, you know, surgery elective. cases that so-called elective. Elective. And I think it's elective uh, procedures that require hospital admission is how I'm, I'm reading it's being interpreted. So some right. patient stuff can continue. Yeah, because I see that our ICU uh, capacity keeps dropping. And in Indiana, for the last week or so, we have been the third worst state in the country in terms of hospitalizations for COVID per capita behind Nevada and South Dakota. And I know that those people are wearing out, the nurses, the doctors. So John, how does the antibody, the cell-mediated response to these vaccines compare to someone who's had a COVID infection? Who's got more immunity afterwards? Um, It's a little hard to make a direct comparison. And and cellular immunity, as we've talked about before, is really hard to measure. Yes. Um, What they both have is neutralizing antibody. And that's the most important thing that uh, it, it's a little too late in the case of the uh, of the of the patient with COVID, but the but the but the, what the vaccine causes is this creation of neutralizing am- antibodies. That I use the Pac-Man example, showing yes. my age of um, <laughs> you know the 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 uh, the antibody going out and binding and neutralizing the virus, and then white blood cells come in and complete the complete the job. Are there non-neutralizing antibodies? Th- there are. Um, they have varying degrees of affinity, uh, you know, matchingness, stickiness, uh, yes. if you will. Um, and, and there's all sorts of antibodies. But the, when, when you're, you know, to when they try to, because um, you you can make antibodies to, you know, the right side, the left side, the top side, the bottom side of, of the yes. virus, and they may or may not cripple the virus. Uh, so the neutralizing ones are the best ones because functionally they're doing the job you yes. want done. You want the you want the new the virus neutralized. So, John, the million-dollar question, you, you highlighted that they're very effective compared to other shots, but in talking to patients, everybody wants to know how safe are they. And and even with people who generally vaccinate fully, I, I get a lot of people saying, you know, you first. Um, should people have safety concerns about this? Has that due diligence been done? It's perfectly reasonable to ask the question, so that's, that's natural. And so the answers are, as we know more and more now, uh, and we start with shots hurt, all right? So don't, you know, don't, don't expect, uh, you know, uh, the sharp pointy object in your arm to uh, be innocuous. <laughs> uh, even saline, you know, it, the, the needle going in hurts. All right? um, then uh, the vaccine working is the body sending cells to that intruder fluid that's in your arm and in the site where the uh, needle goes in, it swells a little bit. It turns a little red, it gets a little warm. And that's the natural process of the body rea- reacting to that invader uh, coming in. And, and that's all perfectly expect- expected. And, you know, a, a day or so of that, and maybe it's a little hard to, to lift your arm. But um, in the trials, they then try to measure how uh, strong that reaction was. How, how severe that reaction was. And um, there's a grading scale. Grade one is simple and grade two. And grade three is the ones that, that interfere with normal activity. And so uh, with this first 
well, for, I'll, I'll, I'll lump Moderna's and Pfizer's together. They, they will cause fatigue, interfering with activity, uh, 4% of the time, 4 out of 100, 10 out of 100. 90% no, but 10% yes. Um, headache, 2%, enough to interfere, you know, headache enough to interfere with activities. Muscle aches, joint aches, that sort of thing. So that's, functionally, that's, I got the shot and I'm on the couch the next day. They're, they're still transient. You're on the couch. Maybe you're, if you're a warehouseman, you, it's hard to, you know, put the heavy boxes up on the shelf. If you're, you know, uh, whatever you're doing, a school teacher, you know, or whatever, you know, it, it's noticeable. But compare, contrast that with the seriousness of this disease. It's still a transient, temporary uh, thing. It's a day or two of inconvenience. It's noticeable. It hurts for sure. But the, you know, the value is, you know, the third day after that's over, you know, you're, you're, you're developing immunity and that's the value of the product. A, a lot so, of people are worried about long-term consequences. Um, do we have examples of long-term problems from other vaccines? So you um, see till they're out for 10 years and then we identify them later? No, effectively, there, there have not been adverse events identified that arise, that start, that are noticeable uh, more than 42 days after vaccination. And that's the case of some influenza vaccines where there is a phenomenon called Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a, a, peril, a, a, peril, a, weak, a muscle weakness, peril, paralyzing in the muscle weakness sense. Uh, condition and it's pretty severe. My sister had it, not related to a vaccine, which is a point. Um, people who don't get vaccinated still get this condition, but sometimes people who do get vaccinated get it. Um, and it, with some flu vaccines, there's been just a little bit more in the vaccinated group than in the unvaccinated group, and so it seems to be a cause and effect thing. It's real and it's consequential, but um, but it's rare and but it, it it's it's recognized quickly that 42 day part. So when it does happen. So, John, you mentioned right before we went on air that there's some very recent data about the, the Pfizer vaccine and some side effects we hadn't heard in the news until, until today. Right. So uh, in so the FDA will meet um, Thursday, the 10th. And, uh, oh, by the way, these things are public sessions. So your taxpayer dollars are paying for them. So you get to watch on the Internet <laughs> if you have a data waste because uh, it's pretty boring. Uh, watching the watching the numbers get flashed on the screen, but anyway, you can watch it. But but in but what happens is before the FDA has those public meetings with their independent advisors, they publish a briefing document, and it came out yesterday. And um, that's that uh, their detailed analysis corroborated what the company had said about two or three weeks ago in their press release about the safety findings. But they went into detail about one that was essentially news. Uh, it's a phenomenon called Bell's palsy. So some of your listeners will have had this or know somebody. Your, your, uh, the muscles on one side of your face weaken, and it looks like your face is drooping. And it, that's the palsy part of it. And um, they observed in the clinical trial that there were four cases of Bell's palsy in the vaccine group, zero cases in the control group. Out of how many? Uh, 30,000 Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so uh, four out of 20,000 vaccine recipients, zero out of 20,000 control placebo recipients. Um, so four is different from zero, but not statistically in this case. I mean, it's imbalanced. So it's, I'm sure it's going to get talked about tomorrow. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll find out some more details about it. Um, Bell's palsy, you, you, you guys may know, you, yes. I've not seen patient, I've not seen patients with it, but yeah. relatively, Temporary. I'll, I'll, I'll pause yeah. and let you comment about it. Yeah, it's the, the seventh cranial nerve. It comes out of the skull just beneath the ear and controls most of the muscles of facial activity. Facial expression is what it's called. And with our weaker, the, the corner of the lip goes down. The eyelid might go down a little bit uh, around there. And recovery? Yeah, most patients recover. It's usually viral, isn't it, Andrew? Yeah, usually I'd say weeks is common, maybe maybe a month or two on the long end. And, you know, we, we see this routinely in practice. You know, every couple of months we'll see one and uh, people generally do really well with it. And a lot of times we can't ever point to anything, but, you know, the thought is, is that it's a virus that's causing the neuritis and causes it. 
And we're going to take a break before we come back to the second half of our interview here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. John Gravenstein today about the COVID vaccine update. You know, John, at the first part of this show, we talked to Joe Zalot from the NCBC about the role of the aborted fetal cell lines in the development of vaccines and the COVID vaccines in particular. Could these mRNA vaccines have been tested without resorting to aborted fetal cells? I, I fear not. Um, molecular biology has gotten to the point where the, the, the ability to measure cellular function and protein shapes and that sort of thing is so uh, dependent on tests, assays, that involve these HEK293 cells that uh, you, everybody keeps resorting to the tools using those cells. And we need, you know, call out to the Catholic universities to see if they can find some replacement that's a better mousetrap that lets, lets it, you know, does the same functions. The companies- I know that the, the John Paul II Medical Research Institute has developed such a cell and is trying to get it out there, yeah. an, an adult stem cell. But I noticed in some of these studies that they also did confirmatory testing in, I think, Vero cells, but isn't it uh, African monkey kidney Maybe cells? Green monkey, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it depends on the function. If they need, um, which tool in your toolbox does which function? And as far as, you know, I'm not the molecular bi biologist, but, but you know, it's sort of like the, the volt, you know, if you had a voltmeter in your garage or you had the thermometer in your, the meat thermometer in your kitchen, you need, you need a, somebody needs to change out the device and, and give the biologist something else to, to work with. A lot, a lot of the testing is predicated on technology that uses these. And so yeah, there's not an alternative. So even if even if a company wanted to use something else, there's not really an alternative. Is that what you're saying? As far as I know, that that, that seems to be the case. Because you know, if there was a better mousetrap, they'd be using it. Okay, so two of the vaccines right now, one of them is the Merck vaccine. There's no evidence so far that there's been any, you know, HEC293 cells used, but you used to work for Merck, and this apparently is being made on the platform they use for their Ebola vaccine, which I guess does not use any HEC293 cells for production. Will the testing use it? Right now on the Charlotte Lozier website, they have this nice little chart of where HEC293 cells have or haven't been used. It has a question mark next to testing of the Merck vaccine. Do you know anything about that vaccine? I don't know. Uh, it was it, obviously it was started after, well, the Ebola one was started while I was there, uh, but it, it, this never came up and and um, uh, it, it never came up. So I, I, I never knew the answer. And I, I, I've left the company since uh, okay. since I started working on the uh, COVID product. Have you uh, seen enough to have the needle jabbed in your arm? I would, yes. I mean, I, I, I was pretty confident you know, from on general principles, um, you know, a month ago. But when I read when I read the FDA document yesterday, I thought, well, there's there's just no, I have no hesitation. Even reading that Bell's palsy uh, story, and uh, this morning there were there's some food allergy or, or a medication allergy issue coming out of the UK. We don't have the we don't have the full story on that yet, but that'll sort itself out, and 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 we'll work out. You know, if if there's some group that should step aside and not get it. We'll figure that out. The program will be organized around that. So what are the practical implications of the fact that there is a cold chain and the cold chain is really cold for Pfizer, 70 to below centigrade and 20 below centigrade for Moderna? Yeah. So minus 70 centigrade is minus 90 something Fahrenheit. That's colder than Alaska. Um, it, the, the implications are that you're going to have fewer uh, retail sites. You might have to go downtown you might have to go to the to the big right. university to 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 get that product or the organizers are going to have to organize a shuttle van system to go from that ultra cold storage location out to each of the retail sites the, the i mean retail in the in the uh, sense of uh, 
you know, patient interface, uh, yes. public interface. Um, it, 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 it adds to the complexity. It's doable. So, so that ultra crazy cold uh, vaccine, Ebola vaccine, went into the Democratic Republic of Congo in the conflict where electricity ain't exactly reliable, and they succeeded. Uh, not, not in the volumes we're talking about for this, uh, but under really austere conditions with some crazy uh, sophisticated freezers, they were able to do it. How long can these vaccines be refrigerated before losing efficacy after they're thawed? Five days for Pfizer, 30 days for Moderna, and they keep working on seeing if they can extend that, broaden that. What happens if someone only receives one dose of vaccine and doesn't get that second one at 21 or 28 days? You get a little protection, um, but you don't get a lot. And, and that little bit of protection has a wider confidence interval. We're less certain of the, what the precision is of that estimate of a little bit. Of several, I mean, 20%, 30%, 40% protection, not 95%. Uh, so you really do want to get in and get that second dose. The CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, the ACIP, they held an emergency meeting on December 1st. What did they decide and who are they? <laughs> so they're the advisors are you one of, them? of the CDC. <laughs> <laughs> they're good people. I know several of them. Oh, you're not one of them. I'm not one of them. <laughs> um, the, um, they're one of several advisory committees down at the CDC, and they've got a track record. They go back to who should get polio vaccine in the, in the 50s. Uh, to tracing their heritage. So um, uh, what, what that meeting was, and they're, what they are are university professor types, um, health department leaders. The chair is the commissioner of health for Arkansas, uh, that sort of thing. And um, uh, what they at that particular meeting, they uh, needed to figure out who, who, who should get vaccinated first because the supplies are limited. So where would we get the most uh, value in vaccination and value in several ways, value in disease reduction, value in, and they had all, all, all sorts of sociologic parameters that they try to maximize equity. How do we, how do we um, uh, uh, do right by people who don't make a lot of money, you know, it, it, which oftentimes are, have roots in, uh, minority disparity mm -hmm. and that sort of yes. thing, um, and so the, so social equity was really huge in uh, in their in their deliberations. So, it, but if in in, in uh, there was all uh, I should have printed out the list of the other variables, but they were similar uh, of that type: equity, fairness, justice, those sorts of things, and um, and um, help to society and keeping things running. And so where they where they ended up was a what they decided was who should get the vaccine first? Who's at the, the very first uh, sets of people? And they came up with two groups, uh, healthcare personnel and uh, residents, adult residents of long-term care facilities. Now, when they say healthcare uh, personnel, they were very clearly, consciously not saying the high-paid professionals. They were very clear to say that includes housekeeping, environmental services, uh, food service, a lot of the low wage jobs, uh, because they have um, exposure to the to the uh, uh, to the patients, they need they need to they uh, they need to be uh, kept on the job to to keep everything run, running in the hospitals. Um, and so so healthcare workers, healthcare yeah, healthcare personnel, not just professionals. Um, and then the second was the adult uh, residents of long term care facilities. We've seen you know heartbreaking pictures of. You know, people, you know, grandma at the window waving at the grandkid and that sort of thing. It's because they they are vulnerable. They're old. Um, uh, a spark of a virus in the facility can kill a lot of them. And, uh, oh, by the way, some of the highest attack rates were at uh, public long-term care facilities that tend to be the places where minorities uh, end up um, uh, 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 being the residents. And so again, the social equity piece came into that. How many people are in these two groups? <laughs> Twenty-five million people. So, so that would account for every dose for the first dose for these people, as long as there's a a, a resupply behind them for yeah, twenty-one so days later. The way Andrew asked that question was, "How much are we going to have by the end of the year?" Well, at the end of the year is only twenty-one days away. Right. right? So there, you know, we'll have more vaccine in January, more vaccine in February. So. 
the, you know, the, the spigot is starting to turn or getting ready to turn. And I, I think a lot of our listeners would, would say, you know, we've seen all these health risk categories and they might be listening and saying, you know, I, I as a listener have several categories, but I think part of the long-term care facility thing is looking at where the deaths are too, because right. out of the people who have died is, I think it's approaching half almost or from long-term care it's facilities. It's a lot. Yeah. I think then those statistics were shown to the ACIP. So here's another um, separating uh, cause and effect from coincidence point. Yes. Um, the, the number of people in uh, long-term care facilities who die per month is a lot. I don't know. What the, I forget what the number is. But the residents of long-term care facility are fragile. They're old, uh, et cetera. And a certain you know, certain number per, per month will die. Well, if right. we vaccinate them all, a certain number per month will die. Right. <laughs> because they used to die. They, they will still die. Um, that, does, that does not mean the vaccine caused it. This is going to be watched very closely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but you, we should be, 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 be forewarned. The, you know, a newspaper headline of, you know, Sally Smith in spite of all these people getting vaccinated because of the vaccine. How long do you think it'll take before all healthcare workers and long-term, you know, nursing home residents are vaccinated? Um, I think a couple months. I, I think, I think they'll be well through the curve in January. So by the end of January, all of us in those two categories should have been able to receive a vaccine. I think so. Uh, you, you know, these are, this is, you know, we're building the airplane while it's flying kind of thing. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think that's about right. And then what order of people after those two groups? Right. So the ones I just described are called 1A. Uh, one, 1B and 1C are up for debate next. And you can watch your taxpayer money pays for this committee and they webcast it. So you can watch the sausage being made as they debate this. Um, the two groups proposed are essential workers, which will have a specific definition of fire, police, um, uh, utility workers, and it's a whole so, variety so it's really of white essential, collar and blue collar, by the way. Essential infrastructure workers. Essential infrastructure workers. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I think grocery store workers are in there. Sure. sure. Um, that's one option. The other option is people over 65 and people with a lot of chronic disease. And when they presented the statistics last time, it was sort of a 49-51 choice. They, those two those two groups were very close. It, it ah. was you know two plus three plus one plus three plus. Um, trying to trying to quantify a lot of subjective um, criteria for would society be better served overall uh, for it to be one group before the other or vice versa. So that's the next big decision that I have to grapple with. So, John, for our radio interview, we have a, about a minute left. We are going to go into overtime. There will be more on the podcast. But before we end the radio interview, John, what final comments do you want all the radio listeners to hear? Keep wearing a mask. Remember what we talked about, about how many deaths there are. This disease will kill you or, or, or your loved ones. Um, I've, I've told my kids, my kids did not come for Thanksgiving. My kids are not going to come for Christmas. We're going to open gifts, open gifts on Zoom. Uh, we are still in the in the midst of the mouth of the dragon in terms of this disease. Keep wearing your mask, keep your distance, and Merry Christmas. <laughs> John, John Gravenstein, thank you for being with us here on Dr. Doctor. Uh, live long and prosper. We've got the trivia question coming up. And please come to the podcast website for Dr. Doctor to hear more wisdom from John. All right, and we are back with Dr. Doctor on this wonderful episode about the COVID vaccine and our loosely related medical (laughs) trivia question. Category Warp Speed. So Project Warp Speed that has given us already two um, successful looking vaccines for COVID. Question is, in Star Trek, a warp factor one is what speed? Andrew? You know, Tom... I, I don't know if I should come come clean on air, but I've never watched Star Trek. But, oh. but I did read the script. So warp one is the speed of light. Warp one is simply the speed of light. 186,282 miles per second or nearly 300,000 kilometers per second. In fact, uh, the meter is defined as the distance that light travels in one over 299,792,458th of a second. Who can measure that? 
So anyway, the bonus question is in Star Trek, what is infinite speed being in all places at the same time? And that is warp factor 10. Holy and, cow. And Joe Zalot knew that. I was impressed by Joe Zalot. So anyway, Andrew, what are your top three takeaways for this vaccine episode? And remember, there is at least another 34 minutes of information on the podcast bonus. Number one takeaway is the vaccine is safe. Um, even talking to Dr. Gravenstein about other vaccines, past 42 days, there's not evidence of long-term problems from any vaccines. So people are always kind of afraid of these nebulous long-term effects. Uh, we don't know of any. Number two, um, it should be safe for everybody to take. There's not groups of people that should be excluded. So if you're offered one, uh, you should probably take it and say thank you. Um, and number three, uh, takeaway, or your your co-hosts are getting it and the people on this show. So um, as much as a personal endorsement of, of the data, that's the best we can do. Yeah, I was talking today with our um, a director of clinical services for our county health department. Uh, had a communication with chief medical officer at a local hospital. Uh, I want to get it as soon as I can to protect my patients. And I think the same goes for you and, uh, and for Chris. Yeah, just, just the number of people. And I mean, I think we interact with more people in healthcare, but no matter what walk of life, the people you're interacting with, at least some of them you're going to care about. And I think for most Americans, they have still not seen COVID hit home to them just by the number of people who have been infected. But they will at some point. So I, I would encourage people to get the vaccine if they're given the opportunity. Amen. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to rate and review our show so that new listeners can find us. Also, please be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.